0: Hey everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford. This is Mark Gagné. How you feeling, Mark?
1: Uh, I'm feeling good. I feel like I feel like Sheer Khan eating Frosted Flakes. How you feeling?
0: I, I feel like a palm frond that fell into a dumpster. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean when I say palm frond?
1: uh yes yeah like like a leaf
0: from a palm tree uh a fan it's been windy here in, uh, in los angeles and they're falling off the trees left and right and it's sort of a problem but one fell
1: on my car the other day <laughs> that's a new experience for i you. thought
0: it i thought it would like i thought those things would damage your car but it didn't it didn't like break anything or whatever it just kind of <laughs> like made a huge noise and i was like what was that um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, here we are in another episode of Shitty Book Reports, and, uh, you know, we usually open up with a game, then it also continues on to uh, me and Mark doing a a shitty book report about something that we've been reading or something that we've read in the past. There's not really any rules here on Shitty Book Reports. Uh, I think you set us up a game for this week.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this week I thought, you know, we could talk about our favorite book covers, maybe do like a top four. Uh, Because you know, I mean, sometimes you do judge by the cover.
0: Yeah. Uh, Oh. Are are uh, you? I have a
1: question. Yeah. Are you a book jacket guy? Do Do you keep the book jackets?
0: You're talking about the jacket that's on a hardcover book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do not yeah I always take them off like i I don't know why it just bugs me i get rid i of usually
0: them. i'm the I'm the person who when it's a brand new book I'm using it as a book like mark for the first twenty pages, but then when it gets beyond that stretching point where it can't where it like starts to not function as a bookmark anymore I just like take it off and get
1: rid of it oh yeah yeah <laughs> um so which is because of that all mine are uh are uh paperbacks.
0: Yeah, I, I, I yeah. I'm way more drawn to a paperback edition than I am to a hardcover edition for sure. Hardcovers yeah. are kind of something I suffer through because if it's like a new book that I needed to get when it came out.
1: Yeah. Um Okay. So yeah, do you wanna start with your number one? Are these in any order? What do you got? No, I think we should trade off,
0: but mine actually mine actually does have a theme.
1: Okay. Um,
0: I noticed I'll start with my first one, but I noticed when I was thinking about the most influential book covers to my life, I wanted to have all these cool answers and have it be like, you know, all these ancient texts and like badass, like literary references. And so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be on my high horse, but then I realized when I was really thinking about like, what are the books that have like the book covers that have really hit me the hardest, all of mine are fantasy books from my early childhood. Yeah, um, so I have a theme, but the first theme and the biggest one for me, probably one of the things that got me starting reading in the first place is the the cover of my
1: edition of The Hobbit. Um, oh, which one is that? So I that, have that's one of those books that has a million covers.
0: Right. So I have the edition of The Hobbit where um, it's probably hard to find online at this point because of <laughs> because of Peter Jackson's crazy, shitty Hobbit movie. But yeah. Um, I have one where it's like a black cover, it's all black, and there's sort of like a curved doorway in the, in, in the center of the image, and Bilbo is holding like a sword, it's like a classic illustration, and Bilbo is holding a sword and golems behind him. Uh, I know that that's pretty vague as far as Hobbit illustrations. Okay, I'm trying to
1: find those. it on Google Images, yeah.
0: You're like not going to be able to find it because it's just, oh, it's like one of like a random, you know, to- like The Hobbit has a million covers. Not to mention that the throwback cover for the original first edition of The Hobbit is also really cool. Um, you can find that online. Um, when yeah, it was cool. I like
1: all the work, the artwork by uh, that Tove yeah. Janssen or something. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot awesome. of.
0: Uh, lord of the rings illustrators but yeah that's my first cover the first cover the hobbit i bought it i got my box set of the hobbit and the lord of the rings when i um, was in grade school and i got it through the scholastic book fair nice Uh, and i just i brought that to my parents and i was like i want this and they said okay even though I didn't expect them to. And then, you know, because it was the most badass book in the little scholastic pamphlet. It had like the sword and everything. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Little did I I know what I was getting into.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, My first one, I don't think they're really in any order, but um, I got to go with... Uh, Johnny got his gun by Dalton Trumbo like that one's really sticks out to me
0: Uh, Is that are you talking about the like the black and white collage one where it's like the guy's hand?
1: uh, Yeah, yeah, so it's I got the Bantam books edition I don't think there are too many different covers of this Mm -hmm. but this the one I have uh, it's all black It's got the giant hand holding out a peace sign uh, in white And then there's a silhouette of the soldier within it at the palm Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't imagine any other cover used for this book like I think I've seen it used with red instead of white and and that looks good too Mm. um i like like the stenciled look of the hand or it's not really detailed it's like a bunch of shapes thrown together to make a hand uh and that mixed with like the higher detail of the soldier and then like the all caps title at the bottom like it's awesome i'd get a poster of that for sure
0: yeah i think i have the same i think i have the same one wait i just found a reddit thread online saying that, that that my cover of the hobbit The one I love the most is the worst one of all time. (laughs) (laughs) It's by a guy named Michael Herring. So if you type Michael Herring into into, into, it, we're both sitting in front of our computers. So, oh, my God. It's not the worst one. It's cool. I mean, Bilbo looks weird. He looks like an out-of-work, like, 1970s porn actor. But um, (laughs) whatever, man. I pretty heavy yeah yeah i saw that i saw that short sword in his hand and i was like i'm good to go i'm ready to read this um (laughs) nice all right my second one also going along with the fantasy theme um so not okay so like the hobbit i got that because of the short sword and it opened up my eyes to being able to you know read longer books and stuff but the next one I almost feel like I had like a semi like prepubescent sexual awakening because of the various <laughs> the various Conan the Barbarian covers. I'm sure we're all familiar with these.
1: Is that a uh, uh, Frank Frazetta? Yeah, Or like um, similar to that. Yeah,
0: so like the com- the 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 classic Frank Frazetta like Conan covers, <laughs> they were just all over. And and not only his illustrations, but just like dozens of the Conan the Barbarian books. Or, you know, like the cover is just like a ripped dude and his, you know, sexy, uh, you know, partner in crime. And they're just, you know, fighting some massive like demon <laughs> or, or he's like protecting her from a dragon or something like that. And I just remember yeah. like the Conan books had like probably the first my first sort of like contact with like erotic fiction. So when I was reading it, I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's what it looks like. Like on the cover and stuff like that. I remember
1: feeling the, <laughs> yeah, heat. I'm looking at it now. That's like uh heavy metal magazine stuff.
0: No, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, yeah, yeah. it looks like, you know, um, heavy metal. So yeah, that would be, my I remember favorite.
1: seeing an ad, an ad for, uh, Rumplements like peppermint schnapps in like an old heavy metal magazine. It's just like that. It's like a some warrior or uh huntress or whatever on top of like a polar bear. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, nice pick. Uh all right, my number two. Uh you might have to look this one up. It's kind of obscure, but um The Lime Twig by John Hawks.
0: The Lime Twig.
1: 1961. Yeah. So so I didn't like really love this book it's like uh it's kind of like an experimental postmodern novel Mm -hmm. about like a horse racing kind of heist Mm -hmm. but i like the cover a lot uh this is this black black and and white white photo photo of a woman yeah 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 it's a woman's face in a crowd but every everyone else is like blurry and obscured and they're all look kind of similar like random old school businessmen or whatever but the thing i like about it is it it makes me think of like a shoegaze album or something like it looks <laughs> like it could be like a slow dive or like a my bloody valentine <laughs> cover yeah
0: it? it's cool good cover um my next what one is uh the cl- again the classic cover things of things change a little bit with the movie but i'm going with the same fantasy theme again so all i could think of was the fantasy books that like those are the best covers to me but uh the original cover for Neverending story okay Um, so you basically i don't know what that is in just in the image you have um and by the way we're in it we have our brand new instagram and all of our social accounts so we'll be putting these out uh when the episode comes out so everyone can check them out but um we you know in this never-ending story cover it's like it's you know he's riding on falcor like there's like a lion in the middle and there's all these like weird bugs and like Oh, yeah, it's I just, see it. Yeah, it's just, like, really cool. And then the thing I like about it, too, is that in the title, they have, like, the two snakes eating each other's tails, like, around the title. And, uh, okay, it's, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's just, like, got lots of that's like, details and stuff. I like the cover of the book in the movie.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That cool. has,
1: like, the metal, it's got, like, the metal um, Ouroboros. Like, yeah, I, I didn't quite have the that, that edition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. A but um
0: you know this is like this is definitely like, all these classic fantasy covers kind of remind me of like i don't know if you ever had this moment while reading but like you're done reading but you're not like completely like out of the world yet so you kind of sit there and just look at the book for you know a good minute and a half or two minutes i used to do that all the time and some of these covers would really like kind of take me in
1: yeah yeah i think i done that for a few books
0: what's your third one
1: nice uh so i got kind of fantasy kind of in that vein but the stand by stephen Mm -hmm. king yep like the first edition of that there's Mm -hmm. been a few good covers of this one it came out in 1978 i like the first edition one the most like it's the one with the two figures on the front like in a sword fight
0: Yeah, yeah yeah i've yeah this is a great illustration
1: yeah, I don't know who did it. I, I didn't look that up, but it's presumably you know good fighting evil. I just remember yeah. seeing it in the library as like a middle schooler and being yeah. like, "Damn, it this reminds must have me of all the secrets in the world." It reminds
0: me of, um, isn't there that like there's like a painter who is, like David Bruegel or like Bruegel the Elder or something like that? He's mm-hmm. like a there's like this guy who. My, my girlfriend would kill me for not remembering his name, but he did these like really complex illustrations and paintings of all these different fantasy situations happening. Yeah. I think it's like Bruegel, the elder or something like that. But anyway, he made th- those type of figures like on the cover of the stand are sort of his style.
1: You know, what it reminds me of is uh spy versus spy kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the guy on the right is like spy versus spy with like the Yeah. Yeah.
0: And stuff like that. Yeah sword versus scythe um, but yeah i mean that's also i feel like that um cover also really gets you kind of thinking about how metaphorical it all is because the stand is very sort of like representational right yeah it is very good versus evil and like i'm gonna set up this scenario it's like a fairy tale in a way and yeah i am talking about uh Bruegel the elder Um, My last one again continuing on with the fantasy theme and I also wanted to have this be like a way of bringing up like I think you and I have talked about this before but when I was young and reading fantasy books I feel like to me it was it was um, it was a way of dispelling the fear of a long book I think like in our society people are like especially when you're younger you're like oh 300 pages like that's not for me like it's not going to be for me because it's 100 pages and especially when you're young that was happening so a book that really broke the barrier for me and i'll give it credit even though now i think it's trash but um robert jordan the eye of the world the original cover for for that um is kind of like it's just like a knight sitting on his horse like you can see it in every bookstore everywhere it's the first book of the wheel of time it's called the eye of the world it's a knight on his horse like leading a party and it's one of those ones where it wraps like around the whole book like it goes behind the spine and everything okay nice yeah i see it and um and the moon is in the background and this book was just the first like i i could go i could do a whole episode about robert jordan and the respect but also the disrespect i have for him but um (laughs) The, this was really like, uh, it was like, okay, I'm reading this thousand page book. Like I'm whatever age I was, I can't remember if I was like in eighth grade or beginning high school or something like that. But I was like, I read this thousand page book, like. And it was good. Like, I enjoyed it from beginning to end. And then all of a sudden, every book f- since then, you know, if I came across, you know, some Faulkner or something that was 400 pages, I'd be like, whatever. Which I think is, like, yeah. really powerful. I mean, I think this Harry Potter does the same thing for people and stuff like that, where it's like, you know, if it's good, it's good.
1: Yeah. Regardless of the length. Yeah. Okay. All right. My last one, a uh, little abstract here. I went with... uh homicidal psycho jungle cat by bill watterson
0: okay let me uh, i've never heard of this in my life
1: (laughs) i'm a big fan of this cover like the colors they use in it you know the negative space Oh, the we're talking. <laughs> you get from one source of light, you know, a lot of potential energy. We're talking in this about image. some
0: Calvin Hobbes right here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's a it's, great cover, though.
0: It is a great cover. Are they? I know you're a huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. Is this like one of like the collected editions from when, like, from early on? Or
1: it's one of them. Yeah, it's from
0: 1994.
1: Uh, cool. Yeah, it's a good one.
0: It is a good cover. I didn't. Do you think it's any... cheating
1: when a book like uses an already established work of art as a cover?
0: No, because actually I was going to say, even though I kept with my fantasy theme, one of the other outliers that I found was um, the cover for the book The Assassination Bureau by Jack London. I think Assassination Bureau is Jack London's best book. And the cover is actually um, an artwork by Magritte, Rene Magritte. And I love both the book and the painter so um no i I, i'm cool with that as long like you know what it is it's that it has to like live up to both things have to be awesome like you can't have a shitty book and put an awesome painting on it you know
1: what about because i was going to say i mean this is such like a high school badass like boondock saints poster epic but like the the david Sedaris book of essays uh when you are engulfed in flames you know the one with the Van Gogh painting on it with the skeleton smoking a cigarette. Oh, right. Yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's a classic book. cover. So like there's probably tons of people who know that as the book cover more than they Yeah, do exactly. The, the painting. <laughs> um, but yeah,
1: I also thought about The Stranger by Camus, like, you know, the one where it's an optical illusion that like hurts to look at.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one's pretty good. <laughs> the lines like all going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have a really, I have like, I have an edition of the stranger. That's a vintage edition that has like one of the covers from the forties. It's just like a bunch of, it almost looks like a Terry Gilliam animation with a bunch of faces cut out. Nice. Uh, yeah. The stranger. It's a good one. Okay. Um, so I think it's my week to go first, right? Yes. Um, Again, I'm going to be talking a little bit about a book, but I'm also going to be talking about the background of that book. I think that this is a book that lots of people will be familiar with. Maybe they were required to read it um, and they hated it, but it's definitely a good thing to... It's I think it's a good book to revisit because the more and more I've been talking to people about it... Oh, for, like Let me do mine Mark style and ask you a question before I reveal the title. Have you ever, like, thought a book was not worth it and then went back later in life and it was totally worth it?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think maybe with, like, Catch-22. I Mm -hmm. just, I don't know why I wasn't into it. I probably just, you know, didn't like reading something for school or whatever. Right. Um, And then realized that it was really good. So I think some when people, I in college maybe.
0: yeah, I think some people in some classes will kind of feel the same way about the book that I'm doing, which is 1957's "On the Road" by Jack Kerouac. Um, obviously, a massive classic. It's definitely, I mean, it's on like so many lists, like every Time Magazine list of 100 best English language novels and all that stuff, like that. Um, there's a lot of sort of mystique around the book. Um, I actually found it a book that was worth revisiting, and it was aw- this was the first time I was reading it. I was never forced to read it in class or anything like that. It's an appropriate book for me at the moment because I just moved across the country. Uh, I drove across the country while I was reading on the road, which is maybe insanely cliche, but that's what I—that's <laughs> why I did it. I was basically like, well, if I'm gonna be reading, I better read on the road. Um, and also I had a nice sort of $5 used bookstore edition sitting um, at my place of origin. So I thought I would just read it um okay cool it's the like on the road so for people who don't know or maybe like i think you can even get the the gist of the book just from the title which is probably also a reason why it's so good but you kind of know like do you what do you know about on the road have you read it
1: i mean hell i, I don't know i actually have not read that uh mm-hmm. i know I, I guess i don't know too much about it other than it's like he was the what beatnik mm-hmm. writer right uh and he just kind of wrote about his experiences and it was like a different kind of style yeah so basically all that
0: stuff is in there it's about crossing the country but originally when i picked it up i was ready to read one road trip like across across the country but on the road is actually like five road trips um it's not Uh, It is the classic East Goes West, but they also go from West to East one time. Uh, There's several different people that he travels with. Um, A majority of it is his friend Dean Moriarty, which is the name for the novel, who is actually Neil Cassidy, which is someone who I'm going to be talking about for most of the review of this book. Um, But basically, I have a question. Yep,
1: Does it talk about Richard Brodigan in it?
0: If he talks about Richard Brodigan in it, it's under a different name, so I can look it up. Um, He probably does. Um, Okay, I'm just curious. There's so many kind of like people that he um, referenced in it that I don't think... I'm actually searching the Wikipedia now for Richard Brodigan, and I don't think that it came up, but... um, the thing about you know on the road is that it's this you know it's multiple road trips like you said it defined the generation known as the beat de- generation i don't think it was defined until after the fact but you know that's just one of the things about classic defining novels it was famous. wait did i
1: fuck up saying beatnik <laughs> no, no 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 am that... i off of beatnik beat beat and beatnik same thing
0: are they <laughs> Are, are beat and beatnik the same thing? I have no
1: idea. I don't know. I mean, I said beatnik. You said beat, so. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Everything here says beat,
0: so I don't know if there's a difference
1: between beat okay, and beatnik. Okay, I'm Nick. wrong. I'm stupid.
0: Research that later. <laughs> no, I mean, I said the same thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the like when I tell you that, when I initially tell you that, like, oh, yeah, it's a road trip where he goes around with people all throughout, like, it's concerned with like a few different years, like in and around the forties and stuff like that. He mentions the date and time a few times throughout the novel, but you know, obviously just like anything else that I think, I'm learning about great novels and great literature is that when I just say, yeah, it's like a guy where he takes a road trip a bunch of times around the U S and they eventually go down into Mexico. You'd be like, okay, whatever. But it's all about the writing. It's all about the way that he started to write. Um, and basically this was Kerouac's second novel. He's actually writing his first novel when he's having these adventures. So he talks a little bit about, you know, getting extra money because he, uh, you know, he published the book, his first book and stuff like that. But the real influence here and where it comes into um, what is eventually named through my research, spontaneous prose. I think Kerouac used that um, that name for his style, but also other you know review reviewers and scholars and stuff like that have called it spontaneous prose. Basically, um, Jack Kerouac knew this guy Neil Cassidy. And Neil Cassidy is a guy who's sort of like pop culture, literary, historical, and musical influence in America is sort of like above anybody else. Um, he's a main character in several Kerouac novels just by the nature of you know who he's talking about because of who the character is in the book. And, okay. you know, Neil Cassidy is someone... like he's someone who's really hard to define basically he was someone who was a writer he was a poet but for all intents and purposes he was basically just the early version of an influencer like nowadays we have people like people who are on youtube and people who are on twitter who you would mainly just call an influencer like you would call them Mm -hmm. like that's their job i would say neil cassidy is the og influencer like He was basically, he'd never published anything in his lifetime. There was only posthumous writings afterward. And his personal life was, you know, he began sort of rough, like going to different universities. He was a wanderer, just like Kerouac is in the novel. But the thing about Kerouac's writing style and the way that he sort of accepts this lifestyle is through Neil Cassidy. And for all intents and purposes, basically one of the only things that you can read that's like a solid fact about Neil Cassidy is his influence on other people like Allen Ginsberg and, uh, you know, the entire Beat Generation as well as. Um, so, you know, he he was with Ginsberg. He was in some of Ken Kesey's novels. He was in Kerouac's novels. He was in Bukowski's uh, poems. He, Hunter S. Thompson knew him. He also drove, uh, he he appears in um, some of the diaries and the literature and the documentaries about the Grateful Dead because he drove a tour bus for them. One of the <laughs> things that is most ubiquitous about everyone, like pretty much everyone who knew Neil Cassidy knew that he drove like a maniac. He apparently like would just get in the driver's seat. And drive for like 18 hours straight like going 110 miles an hour throughout America (laughs) and like he was a prolific car thief and on the road they go into that how he was like growing up on the streets of Denver you know robbing cars left and right I don't know if Neil Cassidy actually started in Denver or if Kerouac appropriated that to the character Dean Moriarty but basically he's just this guy who I think a lot of people and dare I say, a lot of white people, a lot of white influencers at that time were sort of getting introduced to someone who was really sort of like a madcap, crazy. Um, but he was huge. He was like this passionate person who wrote crazy letters to his friends. There are some existing letters of um, of Cassidy's. Uh, and it's said that On the Road was inspired when by Kerouac when he received a letter from Cassidy, that was 10,000 words, and just like, <laughs> and it was just him like writing in again what um, Kerouac appropriated into spontaneous prose. So basically, Cassidy was the wild man who was just too large for life, doing drugs, introducing people to marijuana and cocaine and heroin and stuff like that, but also he He was around people who were who were leeching the inspiration off of him and kind of saying, "Hey, if I could write anything like this letter that I received from Neil Cassidy, then I've made it gold, and that's what Kerouac did. He wrote. He famously wrote the first um, edition of on the Road in nineteen fifty one Over two months, he stapled together what he called the scroll, which was a hundred and twenty foot scroll of tracing paper that he wrote the majority of the entire novel on. <laughs> so, you know, these guys were these guys were doing sort of like, they were probably smoking some terrible weed. They talk they talk about smoking weed in New York City in the 40s and the 50s and all across America mm-hmm. and also in Mexico. So they're probably <laughs> smoking some terrible weed. They were also doing some really weird uh, like speed and stuff like that. You know how like speed and diet pills back then were like started with truckers. Yeah, and it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> so they were out on the road, like doing speed and stuff. There's also a lot of good. The um, Poppers or whatever. Yeah, yeah, there's also a lot of really good references to intravenous drug use in this book. It's usually slept, swept under the rug. Um, if something about this novel wouldn't be what we call today woke or like politically incorrect, it would definitely be uh the treatment of women um the women in this book are basically something to be picked up along the road used and then go on to the next town there are a few main female figures within the course of the novel like who dean is married to and uh jack kerouac gives himself uh as the narrator he calls himself sal paradise which is the name of the narrator of the book but it's just a stand in for kerouac um and, you know, they, they kind of like pick up girls. There's also a lot of weird stuff in here, sort of uncomfortable for a modern reader because they are often interested in underage girls. Uh, they are often talking about, oh, she was 13, she was 15, she was 16, whatever. Um, and a lot of drug and sex references, even though they were swept under the rug, I think that this was radical for the 50s where basically they were saying... Um, You know, oh my God, I can't believe this stuff is in print. He's talking about, Oh, I took her into the you know, into the back alley and made her that's kind of what yeah. they, that's that's the term that they use uh when you make it with a with a girl and you know this was this was shocking stuff where it's like him and dean are going around to carnivals doing drugs having sex with women then moving on to the next town going absolutely crazy there's a lot of like deep tales of screwing people over and stuff like that um they screw each other over they leave each other in the middle of nowhere um in the end of the novel uh they part ways because sal gets you know dysentery in mexico and dean's like goodbye (laughs) i can't deal with you anymore um so
1: there's a lot of they're horrible people they're
0: horrible people but the that's the point kind of you're reading it and being like wow i would i don't know if i want to hang out with these people so bad or if i don't want to see them ever in my life because they're they're ending up um in you know amazing jazz clubs, there's a few references to famous jazz musicians that I think are sort of a one to one occurrence. In Jack Kerouac's Diaries, of seeing you know Dizzy Gillespie and uh, and a lot of jazz legends and stuff like that. Uh, they, he also has this weird part in the book where he talks about George Shearing, which is like a he's a piano he's a blind um, piano player. He's a great piano player. They go to see a concert of his. So there's some real life stuff in there as well. Um, I'm going to read a sort of large paragraph that I think is, I, I think it's exemplary of the novel, the way the language is, but also the end of it is very, I think, at the core of the novel. Um, so I'll start okay. that now. What a crazy cat that was. Woo. Did I dig him. I used to know thousands of guys like that. They're all the same. Their minds work in uniform clockwork. Oh, the infinite ramifications. No time. No time. And he shot up the car, hunched over the wheel and roared out of El Paso. So that's Dean talking here. We'll just have to pick up hitchhikers. I'm positive we'll find someone. Yep, yep, here we go. Look out. He yelled at a motorist and swung around him and dodged a truck and bounced over the city limits. Across the river were the jeweled lights of Juarez and the sad dry land and the jeweled stars of Chihuahua. Mary Lou was watching Dean as she had watched him clear across the country and back, out of the corner of her eye, with a sullen, sad air, as though she wanted to cut off his head and hide it in her closet an envious and rueful love of him so amazingly himself all raging and sniffy and crazy it weighed a smile of tender dotage but also sinister envy that frightened me about her a love she knew would never bear fruit because when she looked at his hang-jawed bony face with its male self-containment and absent-mindedness she knew he was too mad dean was convinced mary lou was a whore he confided he confided in me that she was a pathological liar But when she watched him like this, it was love too. And when Dean noticed, he always turned with his big false flirtatious smile, with the eyelashes fluttering and the teeth pearly white, while a moment ago he was only dreaming in his eternity. Then Mary Lou and I both laughed, and Dean gave no sign of discomfiture. Just a goofy, glad grin that said to us, ain't we getting our kicks anyway? And that was it. Um, So that's basically a part in the novel where dean i think mary lou sal is there i think there's one other girl in the car and there you're starting to get this sense it's about 200 pages in where you're saying oh these people like they hook up with each other this isn't like a normal sort of you know white picket fence 1940s fantasy of of what's happening it's sort of like uh mary that's a counterculture yeah, Mary Lou is only there so she can manipulate Dean, but she's sleeping with Sal at the same time, but he doesn't care and all that stuff. And that I, that was something I think was being put into a book for the first time. And I think that line, ain't we getting our kicks anyway, is basically the spirit of the entire novel of basically saying, listen, I'm just going to tell you all this crazy crap. It The novel does seem longer than it should be. Like, it's basically like it's 300 pages, but it took me like a few months to read, which is a little bit outrageous. Just because I get yeah. like a little bit I, got, I get a little bit tired reading this book of how many different situations there are. basically every chapter is a new city with new you know stuff going on and like and then we did this, and then we did this and then we did this okay. and, and you know how many hundreds of paragraphs did Kerouac write about how crazy Neil Cassidy drove? Um, I don't know, I'm not willing to count, but it's definitely <laughs> I gotta way ask way too many. What's up? What were they driving? I mean, oh, it's a bunch of it's different cars it's through. dozens of different cars throughout the novel. Okay. Like uh, there, there seems to be there's one theme. 40s. Yeah, one of the travel. Yeah, the, sometimes it's a thirty-seven. Studebaker. There's like a thirty-seven <laughs> Ford sedan. There's a nineteen forty-seven Cadillac that they drive around. Uh, there also seems to be a theme in one part of the novel called the Travel Bureau, which I guess was something in the forties or fifties where you could go and say, "Hey, does anyone need me to drive a car from A to B?" And then you could get it. <laughs> Um, so they would hire and obviously everyone who hired uh uh neil cassidy and jack kerouac instantly regretted it they 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 hired a few cars that they just completely fucked up and then dropped it off at the person's house and said see you later um so yeah i mean and there's so many like there it's a great book but at the same time i think a lot of people could definitely have a chip on their shoulder about it because kerouac has his own kind of way of exaggerating things where sometimes you he's you're you're you know he's just has a total crush or whatever on Dean Moriarty or Neil Cassidy. And it's a little bit over the top. Like um you know a few of them are really hard hitting, but then some of them here I outlined one that I thought was just like over the top where it's like, hey now, what's this thing we're all doing in this sad brown world? So it's like, you know, always sort of like this <laughs> sultry um you know funny sort of uh kind of he i almost feel like he's referencing himself sometimes um another great moment probably my most favorite moment from the book um I will also read just a short paragraph. This is this will be like sort of my final thing. But I definitely I mean, I recommend okay. On the Road, but I definitely think, you know, check out Neil Cassidy. I'm, I've am i been doing a lot of nonfiction reading about him. And I, this is almost pushing me into an area where I want to start reading some more gonzo journalism because this is just on the edge of it. You know, like people okay. like basically Kerouac was doing some gonzo stuff, but he changed the names.
1: Um, Yeah, I was going to ask, what can you check out of Neil Cassidy? You're saying, oh, it's just it's nonfiction work about him.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's he has some posthumous (laughs) uh, poems and stuff like that. Um, I actually found a really interesting website that I'll plug on here called cultjones.com, which is basically a collection of rare manuscripts that are like really rare, like all the stuff costs like 5000 bucks and stuff like that. And there's an essay on there called The Friendly and Flowing Savage, and it has an introduction by... Um, cat one of cat one of Cassidy's wives who also makes an appearance in On the Road. So I'd love to be if anyone can get my get can get me my hands on a copy of the Friendly and Flowing Savage um, PDF re- scanned. I'd really appreciate. Yeah, I would see if I find a PDF on a torrent or something like that. But I will leave you. I will leave the last paragraph of what I think is one of my favorite parts of the novel, and it's only about 10, 15 pages in. So um, this will be my last thing from On the Road. I do recommend it. Um, I woke up as the sun was reddening, and that was the one distinct time in my life, the strangest moment of all, when I didn't know who I was. I was far away from home, haunted and tired with travel, in a cheap hotel room I'd never seen, hearing the hiss of steam outside and the creak of the old wood of the hotel, and footsteps upstairs, and all the sad sounds. And I looked at the cracked high ceiling and really didn't know who I was for about 15 strange seconds. I wasn't scared. I was just somebody else, some stranger, and my whole life was a haunted life, the life of a ghost. I was halfway across America, at the dividing line between the east of my youth and the west of my future. And maybe that's why it happened right there and then, that strange red afternoon. Um, so yeah, great hard hitting, you know, stuff like that in between a lot of Americana. I, uh, one last thing I wanted to say about it was the introduction to my edition, which I really want to read. I haven't been able to read the introduction to my edition yet because I just finished before we started recording is Mm -hmm. written by, um, uh, a professor at UConn. Um, which is yes. Introduction by Ann Charters. She's a professor of literature at the university of Connecticut, which is where, uh, Mark and I grew up in a small town outside of the university of Connecticut. So I definitely want to look her up and read some of her writing. And, um, yeah, that's about it on the road. Jack Kerouac, check it out. Interesting. Yeah. Good job, dude. Thank you so much. It was, it was fun to read. Um, there's a lot of crazy stuff in there too much to go into.
1: (laughs) all right uh my turn now so this week i'm gonna jump right into it and then out of it and then back into it again uh my book my book is uh it's a pretty famous one just like you um i have this week rebecca by daphne du maurier uh you gotta say it you gotta say it like niles crane like daphne (laughs) daphne Daphne Daphne. du (laughs) maurier Anyways, so uh, Daphne du Maurier, um, she was an English author, born in 1907. She died in 1989. Uh, hmm. Interestingly enough, she died roughly, roughly nine months before I was born. Ooh. So, I mean, make of that what you will. I mean, <laughs> if you of, believe in the in night of your incarnation. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, so I got carried away with that little factoid, and uh, I did some research on this to see who else, like, you know, died right around then. Some mm-hmm. other possibilities for me. Uh, so
0: the transmutation of your soul
1: yes yes so i've got um uh sugar ray robinson lucille ball uh and ted bundy you know that famous trio yeah (laughs) the ted bundy swingers (laughs) i've also got um maurice evans the guy who played dr zayas in planet of the apes Ooh, that's pretty good so any of those possibilities i mean have you ever thought about this trevor
0: I need to look up nine months before my death. I I, I think uh, I
1: I did that already. I know when you're born. I looked up your life. <laughs> oh so, shit! Yeah. You know my celebrity I, I transmutations. Yes, I looked up your potential past lives. Some okay. people who died around around April eighty eight. Yeah. You ready for this? Yeah. Drop
0: it on me. Wow.
1: You got any guesses? <laughs> uh no no idea. Hope okay. it's not okay. Teddy. Well, <laughs> like <laughs> or, me. Like me and uh, Dumorier, it turns out you got an author too. Okay. Uh, famous sci-fi author Robert Heinlein died right around that time. Oh, Okay, Robert. Starship I, Troopers. I've heard of him? Yeah, Heinlein. Stranger in a Strange Land. Yep. Okay, you've also got uh, Divine from the John Waters films. <laughs> really? <laughs> you got you got Frank Wayne. Uh, no me? one knows who that is, but t- he was the uh, original executive producer of The Price is Right and the creator of Plinko.
0: Oh, damn. So far, I want him to be my <laughs> transmutated <laughs> yeah, soul. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyways, yeah, some little things to think about. But anyways, uh, Daphne du Maurier, she was English author uh, from a family of a bunch of artists. So her, mm. her parents were both actors, so she was really well-connected. Okay. Um, Rebecca is her most famous work. I don't think it's ever actually been out of print. It's one of those, you know, lasting Mm -hmm. classics that there's like a million editions of. Mm -hmm. Um, It won a National Book Award in 1938, led to some collaborations with Alfred Hitchcock. Like they made a movie for Rebecca with uh, Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. And it's Hitchcock that directed it? Yeah, yeah, Wow. Okay. and he um, also his 1963 movie, The Birds, is based off one of her short stories.
0: Oh, okay, cool. My mom is terrified of that movie, The Birds. <laughs> when you see like I've a I've never group... seen it.
1: I've seen clips from it, yeah. I like kind
0: of like, like, I heard her mention it like two or three times. Like we saw some flocks of birds and she was like, oh, it's like The Birds. And I was like, you are scared of that movie. And she was like, I'm terrified <laughs> of that movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, a flock of crows or a murder of crows.
0: A murder of crows. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I feel like that connection that she has with Hitchcock kind of gives you an idea about the tone of her writing. Like, do you like Mm, Hitchcock I do, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, but you're totally right. If Hitchcock was, like, all about her, then I get the picture.
1: Yeah, so she wrote, you know, she wrote a lot about, she wrote about a lot of different things, like suspense, uh, romance, but also, like, experimental themes with, you know, a lot of dark undertones and a feeling of uneasiness throughout. But, you know, she had the rare combo of, being popular like some popularity while remaining technical and experimental um for example like this isn't a book i've read but i've i've just wanted to see other types of stuff that she had written and i want to read it now but her 1969 novel the house on the strand sounds really crazy Mm. uh it's about a guy who volunteers to become a test subject for like an experimental mind-altering drug that allows him to briefly travel back in time to i don't know like 600 years ago, but he becomes like drawn into this kind of voyeuristic experience of following the lives and secret affairs of the people he sees there. But each time (laughs) he tries to interfere or interact with them, he comes, you know, crashing back to the present, like confused and disoriented. And like, he becomes addicted to the experience and basically loses his life in the present because of it. So, uh, yeah, that's one I really want to check out, but Gives you a little idea of what kind of stuff she, she wrote about going back to Rebecca though. Uh, so the story here begins in Monte Carlo where the main character whose name we actually never find out, you know, nameless main character mm-hmm. is a naive young woman who's an orphan and she's the paid companion of a rich American woman, like on her European holiday. Mm-hmm. But During the trip, uh, the woman that she's with becomes sick and she just has a bunch of free time because of that. And so she meets uh, this guy, Maxim de Winter. He's Mm -hmm. a, a very wealthy widower in his early 40s. So she becomes smitten with him. And, you know, he spends a lot of time with her. He experiences like his first joy since the loss of his wife, Rebecca, to a boating accident like a year before. Okay. And after like a very brief courtship, he asked her to marry him and move into his estate in southwestern England called Manderley.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And almost right away from there, things seem really off, and the mood turns very dark. Yes, this is you very know. Hitchcock. Yes. So <laughs> there's this uh, awesome kind of estate that they move to in fact, I think that I'm hat, giving, that's I'm like think a I'm character.
0: Giving, I'm giving Hitchcock less and less credit as you talk, but <laughs>
1: continue. <laughs> so every every move that the new bride makes, uh, so she's, you know, the second Mrs. DeWinter after mm-hmm. Rebecca. Right. Every move she makes is measured up to Rebecca. Right. The first Mrs. DeWinter. You know, mm-hmm. every move she makes falls short. The staff at the estate, especially like the main housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers. They all loved Rebecca. You know, everyone loved Rebecca. How could you not? You know, she was perfect. She excelled at everything. She ran every facet of the environment and her influences to be found everywhere. Like, Mm -hmm. everything is reminiscent of Rebecca. And the new Mrs. DeWinter, who, yeah, we don't know her name, so she becomes the Mrs. DeWinter. She doesn't even know how to begin navigating it. It seems impossible and meanwhile like maxim he seems to be you know a different person now that they're back under the shadow of rebecca you know he's distant he's easily angered Mm -hmm. and it seems like everyone around her has a secret to hide about rebecca and you know the longer she stays there the more she questions what exactly she's gotten herself into and what she can do about the lingering sort of evil that threatens beyond the grave Mm -hmm. um I want to, I want to read a section really quick that demonstrates kind of the obsession with her, but yeah, it sounds pretty cool, right? Like yeah. it's just this dark kind of sinister story and you don't, you have no idea what's, what's really going on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Rebecca, always Rebecca, wherever I walked in Mandalay, wherever I sat, even in my thoughts and in my dreams, I met Rebecca. I knew her figure now, the long, slim legs, the small and narrow feet, her shoulders broader than mine. The capable, clever hands. Hands that could steer a boat could hold a horse. Hands that arranged flowers made the models of ships and wrote Max from Rebecca on the flyleaf of a book. I knew her face too, small and oval, the clear white skin, the cloud of dark hair. I knew the scent she wore and I could guess her laughter and her smile. If I heard it, even among a thousand others, I should recognize her voice. Rebecca, always Rebecca. I should never be rid of Rebecca. Perhaps I haunted her as she haunted me. She looked down on me from the gallery, as Mrs. Danvers has said. She sat beside me when I wrote my letters at her desk. That mackintosh I wore, that handkerchief I used, they were hers. Perhaps she knew and had seen me take them. Jasper had been her dog, and he ran at my, at my heels now. The roses were hers and I cut them. Did she resent me and fear me as I resented her? Did she want Maxim alone in the house again? I could fight the living, but I could not fight the dead. If there was some woman in London that Maxim loved, someone he wrote to, visited, dined with, slept with, I could fight with her. We would stand on common ground. I should not be afraid. Anger and jealousy were things that could be conquered. One day the woman would grow old or tired or different, and Maxim would not love her anymore. But Rebecca would never grow old. Rebecca would always be the same. And she and I could not fight. She was too strong for me. Yeah, so, yeah I'm
0: I'm, interest, I'm interested
1: <laughs> it's awesome like um so I don't I I don't want to give away that much about the plot because there's some awesome twists in this
0: yeah see like as everything that you've said so far I've been wanting to add like you know. I've been wanting to like, uh, like, like I'm not, I don't, I don't even want it spoiled for myself. This is one of those ones where maybe we don't want spoilers, but I already have, I have like no. theories about the husband. I'm like, what's going on with him? <laughs> what's going on with? I the mean, you can paper? run them by
1: me. You can run them by me, but I'm not gonna say yes or no. I don't know. I think that um. husband
0: killed Rebecca in the past. I think he like offed her, and now he's like got the he's got the new one in or something like that. I don't know.
1: Okay. Um. So so I've got to say. You know, this book starts out a little slow. It takes time establishing mm-hmm. all the characters. But, you know, pretty much we get on location, which is like once they get to the Mandalay, the estate, it mm-hmm. complete, it totally takes off. Like, do you yeah. like those slow burn kind of books that kind kinda of just like go kind the fuck of, off? But I, can, the I, can
0: see, I can see what you're talking about, like the initial description that you went into, like. When, he, when she's like traveling around with that uh, like she's a paid companion or whatever, it's like it's probably is one of those ones where it's like, okay, get to Mandarlay.
1: <laughs> yeah, they got to start it somewhere, you know yeah I mean you, you get you get to know her personality. she's kind of timid, she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life and then she kind of mm-hmm. gets swept away right so it's it's a, sen- it's a central part, but it's um, I don't, you're kind of like waiting for the the really good stuff to happen. I mean, you expect something to happen, but once it does which is like right around page 150 of my edition like exactly. Uh and it's like 360 pages, so almost near like I don't know. Before you get halfway, uh you get some great twists way. and you don't yeah. you don't really think it will unfold in the way that it does. Mm-hmm. And uh you know it also has like a a very supernatural feel to it almost. Hmm. So it's kind of more like psychological thriller than like romantic suspense, I right. guess. But when you do get to those twists, um, and there are a few, they reminded me of kind of like the Mount, the Count of Monte Cristo.
0: Ooh, yeah.
1: Where it's like, I mean, with the Count of Monte Cristo, though, it's like the secrets in that you were kind of like in on the whole time.
0: But this one you're not. But they
1: were still, yeah. they were still like devastating when he was able to, you know, reveal them.
0: Yeah, that's actually something yeah. that I think about the Count that if like obviously it's from a different time but it 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 probably could have been even stronger if you didn't know some of the stuff that you knew i mean like it was being written for a different audience but i see what you're saying
1: yeah yeah Yeah. but yeah uh the second half of this book it's fleshed out really nicely you know you find yourself immersed in the setting of Mandalay, and like i would really recommend it it's a lot more like a a gothic kind of romance novel covers a lot Mm -hmm. of ground really grips you in the reading experience stuff like Um,
0: that always makes me want to wonder too i mean it sounds fantastic i definitely want to pick it up but something about the process of like how you describe that makes me think like i would want to know the background of how she wrote it like like you know what i mean like i have this great idea where this woman is stuck in a mansion and like all the good stuff is like you know, yeah. during that. And then it's like, oh, yeah, like tack on the beginning so I can explain my great idea. <laughs>
1: yeah. I actually, uh, as a side note here, which kind of le- kind of leads into that, there's actually, there was some controversy about plagiarism with this book. Whoa, okay. So there was a Brazilian novel published four years earlier called The Successor by mm-hmm. uh, Carolina Nabucco that is very similar, you know, okay. where like a young woman who is married a widower discovers that the first wife still seems to have a powerful hold over the household. Right. I mean, I mean like even that of the
0: successor sounds pretty similar. Yeah,
1: it sounds pretty damn similar. So like, I'm interested in reading that now and kind of judging for myself. Right. But from what I know about like Daphne de like background. She grew up on an estate like in Cornwall, England, like where you know, mm-hmm. like the setting, like maybe she, she, it might be plagiarism for like the idea, but like the fact that she lived in that sort of setting and that Mm -hmm. setting was such a big character in the book. And also like, Mm -hmm. I know that she wrote other stuff. It wasn't like, I don't know. I'm going to have to pick up that other book and, you know, kind of judge for myself.
0: I'd also be like, you said the setting and stuff that the setting of Rebecca kind of brings me in further because I have previously lived in the UK um, and The the country estate is very much sort of like a thing that I almost feel like it can't be explained other than if you go there or at least see pictures of what a quote unquote country estate slash mansion was back then. It's sort of like it's like the whole like Downton Abbey concept of like this is our estate, but it's like a massive sort of country home
1: yeah <laughs> and uh you do you like
0: no matter what when you're in those places it doesn't have to be Downton abbey when you're in any of those places or see pictures of them and stuff like that all you can think about is like the wild drama that happened there and you know so I, <laughs> I, I, this the... setting it definitely gels with me
1: love triangles and yes yeah. secret stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay um so yeah and also a second side note um Steve Hackett, the guitarist for Genesis, who wrote a song inspired by the book, on his 2003 album "To Watch the Storms." Is that and what brought now you here? The, no, uh, sort of. I mean, I knew that it was connected to the book, so I I heard the song before I read the book. But you mm-hmm. know, now the lyrics of the song make a lot more sense to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that so? You heard the song before you came to the book, but you didn't discover the book through Steve Hackett.
1: Yeah, sort of like that. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Just a side note. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that was inspired by it. Uh, other forms of media, other songs, stuff like that. So yeah, I definitely. Yeah, check Rebecca. Out. Like I said, it's I, very, I, very good.
0: I think I'm giving Hitchcock a little bit less credit for his style going forward. <laughs> what, what was the author's name again?
1: Um, Daphne Du Maurier. Daphne
0: du Maurier. Yeah, so now when people talk about Hitchcock, I'm going to be like, but do you know about Daphne du Maurier? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Come on, people. Um, yeah. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I do want to see the movie now. I heard that uh, Lauren... What's his name? Um, Olivier? Laurence Olivier gave a good performance. Uh,
0: nice. Awesome. Well, good job. That was cool. That definitely sounds like a good one
1: yeah thanks for listening everybody this has been another episode of shitty book reports you can find us every sunday on spotify soundcloud instagram and twitter at sbr the podcast you can also email us at sbr the at gmail.com send us your comments suggestions books you want us to cover uh the times where we fucked up whatever whatever you want uh, see you next time peace